This is no Mickey Mouse school. You're not getting off easy because you're talented. You work twice as hard. Now, I don't care how well you dance or uh, how cute you are or how many colored tutus you have. If you don't give your academic subjects equal time, you're out. For Coco, it's the stardom. For Ralph, it's a chance. For Leroy, it's survival. For Lisa, it's the dance. Bruno, this is our big chance, man. Don't you want success? They've got nothing in common but a dream. So you want to be an actor, huh? Yeah, sure I want to be an actor. Judy, Judy, Judy. A dream that one day the whole world will know their name. Because I'm going to be a dancer, a good dancer. You know who says so? Me. A dream of fame. Fame, it's the dream of instant success. I'll have $20,000 a week, I'll have a hit TV series, I'll have my face on the cover of TV Guide. And the constant reminder of failure. I don't think you'll ever be good enough, Lisa. But I don't know what I'll do if I can't dance. When I'm down and feeling blue. It's dedication. Dance is not a way of getting through school. It's a way of life. And frustration. <laughs> It's stage fright. And opening nights. Kids are into sex a lot earlier in the South Bronx. Like about 6 a.m. If I ask you to hold me tight. It's love. Through a cold, dark night. It's pain. All anyone ever promised you was seven classes a day and a hot lunch. It's contagious. You want to know what's happening to me, man? Success, all right? Now, you either hang on or you hang up. It's outrageous. It'll change your name. I'm becoming an actress. But I want you to be the Doris that I know. It'll change your life. I'll pay my dues on the West Coast. Come back to New York as a star. If they've really got what it takes, it's going to take everything they've got. Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer presents an Alan Parker film, Fame. Hello, and welcome to the Film and Water Podcast, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly, and uh, one of our favorite guests is back, the man that my dad calls the son he never had, David Ace Gutierrez. Hi, David. Hey, Rob. How are you doing? This, this must be your, this, you know what, just so everybody knows what's going on at this time of recording, this is your banner weekend. That's right. Yes, uh, yeah, the, but yeah, the, the weekend we're recording this is the weekend that the Aquaman trailer dropped. So this is a, a big moment in uh, geekery for me. But I mean, all my life, so, all the moments of my life are involving geekery, of course. Right, and and high 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 marks. Uh, but uh, I just wanted to you know congratulate you on <laughs> single handedly making this happen. What is it? The, the secret, right? That's that the book where. Yeah, the- <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, That's so, right. I, well I, done. I, thank Some you. Some people yes. want like insurance for their families. Some people want a home. Rob wanted an Aquaman movie. <laughs> <laughs> but in, oh, t- I didn't, in typical I didn't, Rob Kelly fashion, not quite the one that he. 
I didn't. I, yeah, I, I missed the mark. Oh, I didn't realize that the secret could only be used once. I thought you could just keep returning to it. I didn't. I didn't know that. Oh, oh yeah, only once. Only once. Oh crap! So, All right, well, monkey pod. Learn. But, <laughs> yeah, monkey pod. But uh, no, I'm, I'm. Thank you for for taking time out of. I, I know you have a busy media schedule right now. Um, <laughs> so thank you, true. thank you for uh, for taking time out to record these with me. Well, thank you uh, for coming back on. Uh, we're here to talk about this is a little bit of an unusual episode in that we're not going to be talking about one movie, not two movies, three movies. Uh, we're calling this an Alan Parker triple feature. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with Alan Parker, brief history. He is a director. Uh, he's a British director. He's born in 1944. He's one of these guys that, like, I don't think any of his films except one that we're one of the ones we're going to be talking about have ever been like a particularly big hit i think he's a, he's a guy who's made critically acclaimed films yeah and he's a, you know he's always been working i mean the, some of his uh his films are bugsy malone the very strange gangster musical starring children midnight express that was a pretty big hit and they did fame which we're going to be talking about shoot the moon is another one we're going to be talking about pink floyd the wall birdie angel heart mississippi burning come see the paradise the commitments the road to wellville evita with angel Madonna. heart Angel, Angel, yeah, Angel is Ashes, and his last film was the critically reviled Life of David Gale from 2003, which uh, no one really seemed to like. And he hasn't done anything since. He's he's around. He gives interviews and stuff, and he gets offered things. But apparently, he's I guess happy uh, in retirement, as far as I know. Do you, is that what you've heard? I, that's what I've read too. He just doesn't seem interested. It's it's funny. There's an age of filmmaker. Well, actually, any creative. There's always that. There's always the kind that's going to adapt, right, and just kind of right. go with whatever. However, the industry changes. There's the kind that's going to dig in their heels and just say, um, "Enough's enough." And he seems to be like the latter, where it's um, because you know he's never. He's not. I mean, the guy's worked steadily and really hasn't churned out a dud necessarily, except for the David Gale movie. But everything else, you know, has some sort of notoriety or no pun intended fame in some in some sense, right? I mean, Angel Heart became a cult classic. Um, Shoot the Moon's kind of a quiet. I, that was probably like a cable classic, right? Um, uh, uh, the Wall, huge. The Commitments, kind of a Midnight. middling middling hit, right? So you know, he's had he's had very high highs and kind of run of the mill, or kind of middle, middle middle success with a lot of other things. And if if you compared him to an actor, he'd be kind of like a that guy director. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I've seen that. Who directed that? I have no idea, kind of thing. But I've seen it. Right. He's I mean, that he makes. Kind of guy. Yeah, he makes the kind of dramas that I just probably in this era of mega blockbusters just doesn't interest him. You know, I mean, I can't, I can't, yeah. I can't picture you know Marvel coming to him and saying, you know, hey, do you want to do Iron Man four? Like he's just not kind of that kind of guy. His stuff sure. is very, re- his stuff is very real, very gritty, very grounded. We'll get to all that right. in the three movies we're going to talk about. But uh, yeah, I could just see him being, you know, just like his time is sort of. No, I don't want to say his time has passed in a in a bad way, but just. The, the industry has changed under his feet a little, and right. as you said, there are some people willing to adapt. And he maybe he's he's got his money, you know. He's like, I don't need to do this. I can just sit back and and enjoy life and stuff. And in fact, um, we're going to end this episode with a clip I found of him, an interview with him, talking about that he was offered the Harry Potter franchise, and he just didn't. As he's in his own words, he didn't get it. Like he just was like, I don't, I don't understand it. I don't you know why anyone. Both, Alan. You right. So, so, but, but nevertheless, I mean, he had a really great run. And so like I said the three films we're going to talk about are Fame from 1980, Shoot the Moon from 1981, and The Commitments from 1991. And the way this got started was um, I was going back and in anticipation of meeting Karen Allen, 
which I did back in April. Wait, what? Uh, I, yeah, <laughs> I was catching, I didn't tell you that, I was catching up on a bunch of her films, a bunch of her films I had never seen. And one of them was Shoot the Moon, which was a, a divorce drama starring Albert Finney and Diane Keaton. And I'd always heard good things about it. Siskel and Ebert at the time raved about it on the podcast 80s All Over, which is one of my favorite shows. They talked about it. They said how great it was. And I was like, I always want to see this. And I was always fascinated at the idea that Karen Allen, post Raiders of the Lost Ark, who probably could have done virtually anything, did this small drama. That was fascinating to me. So I watched it, and I loved the movie, and then I, I, I asked David, would you be willing to come on to talk about it? And he was like, yeah, that'd be great, but I also want to talk about... I, I, you I want to talk about, about a, the, a better Alan Parker movie. <laughs> right? Now, now, come on. You want to do the commitments. You've been yes. talking about the commitments for the longest time. And so I was yeah. like, okay, well, if you watch Shoot the Moon... I'll watch the commitments. So we, we traded. Right. And then somehow you managed to jam fame in here as yes, well. Because so. that seems like your kind of movie. How so? Well, do you want to so you want to start on right, fame? Well, yeah, well let's talk about let's talk about fame. Of course, fame came out in nineteen eighty. It's directed by Alan Parker, written by Christopher Gore, and it's it's a sort of comedy drama. Uh, it's a chronicle of the lives of several teenagers who attend a New York high school of, for students for gifted in the performing arts. And it's not a plot-driven movie. It really is just sort of... It's a character piece watching these kids go through their paces about learning to find themselves as performers. So, so yeah, why did you think I would particularly like this movie? Because, Rob... (laughs) No, no. Because you went to the Qbert school. I did? I've heard. Is that right? Is that... No, wait. Did you go there or... um, Did you study under the disciples of Michelangelo or something? And... and, uh, it felt that Tuscany. way. Tuscany? Is that where we... Is that That's where, right. Yeah. No, no because... I, well, in my head, despite what you and, and uh, your your co-host on the episodes devoted to the uh, uh, school have said, uh, John Trumbull and Sean... Uh, John Tiffany, yeah. John Tiffany. I, in my head, the Kubert School is like fame. The fame school. <laughs> In that, it, no, I'm serious. In that, why? I guess that's funny because it's far off the mark. But because these are the kids that go to that school, right? Like, right, right, kind of, right. Okay. Because to me, the fame school was magic. That was a magic place to me. I wanted to go to a place like that where it's a bunch of like-minded weirdos who have a thing that they can do really well, maybe one or two things that they can do really well, and they mm-hmm. don't belong in a regular high school. That's how I felt probably from like grade kindergarten to this day. <laughs> and and I just thought that you would see a lot of yourself in some of these guys. Okay, I yeah, I agree with that. Right. This what the, the thing that that caught me uh, caught my attention the most Leroy, in this movie. because you can't read and you just want to dance. I get that. <laughs> There is, right, and I do carry a knife with me, and I, I did have to turn in my knife to get into the Cuberts call, like that You're scene. You're from, from Philadelphia. Uh, right, exactly. Hey, now, come on. Um, no, but it, the, the, one of the, the, the thing that I, I that caught my attention the most at this movie, first of all, I liked it the fact there's no credits other than Alan Parker, fame, uh, written by Christopher Gore, and that's it. There's no cast, which is kind of like an interesting idea that these are kind of these anonymous kids, nobody's... Uh, more important than any others. There's no stars of this movie. It's just, here's everybody. The way that Alan Parker drops you into this world without any, um, like, guideposts or any tour guide, like, there isn't any other person in this school that's not a kind of weirdo 
Uh, and I mean, you know what I mean. I don't mean no, that in I, a nasty way. But we, everybody here is very idiosyncratic, and they're following their dreams. And everybody is like that. And so there, you have to kind of just – it's like a fly-on-the-wall kind of thing. And I, I liked that approach that Alan Parker presumably brought to it, which was just, okay, here it is. This, it's like you're one of the students that's just watching everything else go going on around you. And I like that a lot. Right. But you didn't see – I guess – and I came at it because – well, I – uh, did did you had you not seen this movie before? We no, were... I'd never seen Fame before. Really? Nope. What about the it. TV show? Did you watch the show? No, I've certainly uh, heard of it uh, and and the, the song Fame. I was that right. monster hit. Right. Uh, but no, I this is just one of those movies that I never had anything against it. It just I just never saw it and I never got around to ever catching up on it. But I'm glad that I saw it now because I I did enjoy it. Uh, I really did. You did. And and yeah. this is the New York that I love to see. And I know, and my, my one of my favorite uh, podcasts, uh, Earth. I'm sorry, Earth, Radio versus the Martians. Um, Mike Gillis they, and uh, and his and his co-host Casey Doran talk about how New York City is in love with itself more than any other city <laughs> on, the pl- <laughs> on the planet. Um, and but this is the New York that I love, like this this grit post Serpico era New York, barely mm-hmm. Serpico era New York, where it's its own character. And it feels like every time the students set foot out of the school, they're entering some sort of weird danger fest. Mm-hmm. And that the school is the only place, one, where they're safe, and two, where they're safe to be themselves. And I really appreciated that about this place. Because there's a scene – do you remember the scene where Leroy has a – he has a meltdown, essentially? Yes, because right, because he why, – why, why, forget, why does he have the meltdown? Because he can't read. Oh, that's right. Right, and he gets kicked out of class by Ann Mira. Oh, she's uh, she's fantastic in this, by the way. But yeah, she is, she's um, great. Yeah, uh, and he, you know, he he throws all the all that all the school supplies around, and and he, you know, he has he has his fit. But it's okay because this is the place he can do that. He can't do that. He lives under. He's a homeless kid. He lives under the bridge, and this is his only refuge. This is his home. And right. I, this is right. These these are these are like a lot of these are tough kids that get to like. There's the one kid who's like, I just want to dance, and you're like, you would think, in, in probably in his neighborhood, he would get the crap kicked out of him. Well, you, for expressing you, such a thing, right? You you would understand more more the Maureen TV character of Doris. Most of your listeners probably know her better as um, Lucy Lane from Supergirl, from, right? From Supergirl, her Popeyes of the movie, as I call it, uh, Supergirl. Uh, like she has a perfectly fine house life, but this is the only place where she can be herself because she has, and actually she has no idea who she is. And have you? Did you ever? Since you didn't go, I went to um, I went to UT Austin, and uh, I was in the uh, radio, television, and film program, and I was a I was a playwriting uh, minor as well. So I met all these kids essentially. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. but, uh, there are rooms full of Doris's. And imagine, um, you imagine you and I are just having this conversation, and all of a sudden we switch to a Scottish brogue, and in, then in the middle we go to Irish, and then we go to an English Cockney accent, and then we are um, Hindustanis or something. That is the performing arts school that I <laughs> that I wow. saw. Yeah, it's very tiresome if you're not in it. If you <laughs> if you're not if you don't buy into the thing, um, it's a uh, it's it's a weird ride. So, but it it just felt. The reason I love this movie, it, it's familiar. And as a kid, I'm going to tell you a secret, I was a Bruno. Oh, were you? Yeah. He's the reason I want to learn piano. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Did you learn piano? I did. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. You know how to play the piano? I'm no Jules Holland. He doesn't have to <laughs> squeeze his safe. But um, but uh, not not terrifically. 
But wow. uh, very cool. Because, I didn't know that. Because then I made the decision. I really want to meet the girls, and lugging a piano around ain't going to happen. So I'm switching to, <laughs> to alto sax. Oh, ah, and there we go. Tell you, let me tell this you. Much is, this much is true. Uh, <laughs> seven, David. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you mentioned New York City because, you know, that's, it's funny. There, there is a lot of footage in this movie of, you know, the, outs, the, the outside environs and yeah. parts of New York that Alan Parker shows, which is, again, you know, amazing to think about because he was a British guy. So this was not his home turf, but he really shows a lot of the, the outside New York. And, and there are parts of New York that look like Mad Max, Fury Road. You know, and, and but there were parts of a lot of of New York that did look at Mad Max. It's it's not dressed up. I mean, there's piles of rubble that like Bruno has to climb upon when he's bringing his stuff home. It's kind of amazing. There's um, a lot. There's yeah. The, there's the scene with the hookers where Paul McCrane is walking by and the hookers start like slapping their 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 pimps around or whatever it is in the street, and he's just sort of watching all of this. You know, like there's a lot of grit going on in this movie. Um, and I'm, I'm also glad you mentioned um, Maureen Tifu because I, as I was watching the movie, I was like, where do I know this girl from? Couldn't remember. And so I look her up and I'm like, oh, she's Lucy Lane and Supergirl. I think she's terrific in this movie. Like, oh, I everybody really in good. this movie is wonderful, and I, except I for the dancer. That, well, I, and, but I feel bad that she didn't have like a bigger career because I think she's, she's really good here. I think because this – like, well, the Lucy Lane character she played isn't too far afield of this one. You know what I mean? So maybe she's mm-hmm. – like she's kind of got a thing. You know, maybe. But yeah, no, I think she, everyone in this is wonderful. Um, I and I loved her reaction. That to me, what would be hell on earth is going to one of those Rocky Horror screenings, one of those interactive screenings with the audience, um, where she kind of had this is like her chrysalis moment. You know, right. she, she does some pot, she gets really excited, and she joins those people on stage. Um, well, this is the this is the first movie to show that, right? I read that this is the is first that? movie to show Rocky Horror, like to ever convey outside of the world of Rocky Horror what that was about. And, and people and, still were drawn to that, huh? Yeah, yeah, it was a big, Ugh. it was a big thing. Uh, well, <laughs> hey, now come on. What? Uh, Nothing worse than listen. You know how I like my movies. Quiet. Yes. <laughs> you know how I like my audiences. Pretty much dead. And this is that's the opposite. Yeah, that's total horror. But um, no, it, 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 and uh, just for the people that have never seen this, the, the way the movie sort of scales itself is there's the audition for the for the um, for the for the uh, for the school, and then for the four years, and then kind of a right, graduate. Right, right. There's title cards that come up: freshman year, right. sophomore year. Right. Because as we'll see in other in the other two movies, um, Parker really doesn't concern himself with explaining where he is in his story in terms of time. You, the viewer has to reset themselves every time. Like, oh, we're in Christmas, so it's been four years from the last thing kind of a thing. This is the one movie of the three that we're talking about where Parker actually tells you when things happen within a person's lifetime. One of the one of the hallmarks of his career is that he has very different genres. Like He's working all different genres, and there's a quote from him I found on IMDb where he said he, want, he wanted to do at least one movie in every single genre. That was available to him. Now we'll see that he did more than one musical. Right. So I think things just came in front. And he did more than like he never did a horror movie or anything like that. But nevertheless, like you could, it's very very diverse kind of thing. Because I mean, Bugsy Malone is a musical, but it's a very kind of stagey musical, and it's purposely kind of uh, you know like show businessy with right. you know, people doing dance numbers. This is all the except for the except for the fame number where everybody literally starts. Although. Well, let me ask you that that scene where they sing the song on the streets is that really happening in the streets? Yeah, or is that, okay, same as is? Hot Lunch. Okay, your favorite right. song. Yeah, 
Um, <laughs> the original name of this movie until the writers found out that that had a different meaning. Right. Um, right. But uh, no, I love. In fact, that fame, that fame moment, um, or the fame musical moment, really hit me this time because this is the first time I've seen the movie as a father, mm-hmm. and watching it before that, I put myself in those kids and this in those kind of kids. Um, roles i guess and then this time is when i realized oh man if if my son did something like this i would i would be that taxi driver and i would blare his song for everyone to hear just beam in with pride i love that scene i think it's um i think we i know what you mean because it's sort of a sidestep from the reality that that he seems to sort of bathe this movie in but um it, I think it works, and I think I think it happens. Wait, did you think it was a fantasy scene? I, I thought maybe it was exaggerated. Like I knew that the kids were dancing and uh, you know having a spontaneous thing on the street, but the level of it, I was like, I don't know, is this really happening? And it didn't it didn't bother me one way or the other, you know. Well, they're very um, self-absorbed kids. I yes. mean, the storyline is filled with self-absorbed people, so it makes yes. sense that they would just assume that everyone is kind of onto their onto their thing too. I think that's that that's why. The hot lunch and the fame number work for me so well because they, they are um, like, yeah, of course you're going to like my song and of course you're going to know how to dance all the dance. Moves. You know what I mean? Right. Because you're in right, my world. So it's good. Right. That's, that's how that, that's why it made sense. Okay. I can see that. Right. Because there's scenes of like uh, Doris and Montgomery played by Paul McCrane, who I knew from ER. Right. It's weird to Careless. see him here as young men <laughs> Do, doing <laughs> the, uh, like they're, they're, they're doing play acting on the streets in New York or like she's pretending to be a blind woman and like, they're incorporating everybody in real life around them in their play acting. Yeah. That's you what know? drama but, students do. But that's what drama students do. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, that's the, and there's the, the, you know, when the, what's his, what's his name does the stand up comedy and kind of bombs on stage, you know, like he's, again, it's, it's like, he's kind of not worried as much about bombing. I think he's just doing it to sort of experience it. Like he's almost like an actor playing a bombing comedian kind of. Right. And that's involved. It's like Vindy, Andy Kaufman is like, it's involving the audience in your art. That's uh, separate from them right. actually laughing and stuff. But so they become your, they're still your targets for your art. Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. They're manipulated by the artist the whole time. Yeah. Right. right. No. Right. So I, yeah. Did you, but so you don't mind, you, you like those numbers. That's what I'm hearing. No, I did. No, I did. I I was hooked into these kids. It's so funny about how. Who were you, the... Rob, in, at the school? Were, were you a Bruno? Were you? A... No, definitely not a Bruno. Were you a Ralph? You were a Ralph. No, you, the reasons that the comparisons to the Kubert School don't hold up as much is because that was such a focused on being a commercial artist, and so you just didn't have the level of idiosyncrasy that you have here. Like I would nobody... have expected that for some reason. Okay. Yeah. No, but nobody there was that level, like purposely a weirdo. Like a lot of these kids are kind of weirdos for their own sakes. I don't know, although the, the scene where, good Lord, they kiss the, where Doris and Bruno kiss each other through the subway window. Oh, that's making, I'm, God. That's coming up. It's, it's playing as I'm talking. It's making me nauseous. Yeah, Doris, Doris, of, Doris died six minutes later. Yeah, really. <laughs> Tuberculosis. <laughs> kissing a New York, uh, 1980 New York subway, subway car train. Oh, my God. She somehow um, ended up pregnant and dead. Yeah. <laughs> but no, yeah, there just wasn't that level of, like, I'm just being a super weirdo because I can't. Oh. There, just, there just wasn't that. Because there was that at UT, certainly in both the film and, and drama programs. Yeah. Yeah, there were guys that um, there were guys that just liked like you know Truffaut because that that sounds good. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, at home they were watching uh, 
Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome mm-hmm. five times a day. You know, what I mean? but the, it was it was all the, yeah. And then the the acting the the, the, the acting kids were nuts. They were because <laughs> I I came at it as an outsider because the playwrights um, we we had classes with with actors we had workshops with actors but because I, I, I was a late joiner and I didn't necessarily think I was going to be a playwright for anything. <laughs> but, uh, um, I had a very, I, I, I had an outsider's view of it. And these were people that acted like they all had the, they all had the Academy award winning ego, but without winning the Academy award. Oh, and, right, right, right. and they all thought that, that, um, you know, that it, it's really just a matter of being discovered. You guys don't, you guys get, you guys get to bathe in my talent. Just wait until that guy out there sees me and cast me in Rent, because that was the big thing at the time. Rent, cast me in Rent, and then then you you know then then maybe I'll take one of you two, one or two of you with me, kind of a thing. <laughs> but but the, yeah, they they were this couple. They were always those kids were always uh, doing bits and improv over a bagel or something. It gets very tiresome. I, I could picture that. Yeah, I could imagine that. And that's funny. You're, you're talking about people that had that attitude, whether they were famous or not. That kind of reminds me. I saw a documentary a bunch of years ago about the first five years of Saturday Night Live, and then they, when they got to the part where they talked about how the cast started like fighting with one another, and the, the show kind of the, that original iteration of the show ended, and they they were interviewing somebody that was like a a guy on the periphery who knew all these people. And he said, you know, a lot of people have said it was fame that kind of broke them up and drugs. And he goes, no, he said, he goes, I knew them before they were famous. And he said, they were, they were conceited assholes before they were famous. He goes, they were conceited, half conceited assholes afterwards. He says, of course, they just, they just figured they were just waiting to be discovered, you know? Right. They, so they, it wasn't the fame that changed them. It just amplified who they were. And right. so, yeah, we didn't, we, yeah, we did not have that. We didn't have, Uh-oh. I mean, part, part of it was, there was no performance aspect to the Kubert School. Everything was so much more internal. You're you're huddled over your drawing table, as opposed to this, where you're like you're acting, you're dancing, you're singing, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, but no, I mean, I I liked this movie. I, I hooked into the kids. I was sympathetic to them. It, I, I wanted to say it's so funny how it all depends on how you choose to shoot something. Because there's a scene in this movie of a bunch of the male students spying on the girls in their changing room who are 14 to 16 who are like 14 to 18 years old when you think right. about it. now of course it's literally the same scene in porkies right but yet it's, you got a very very different read from it from as directed by alan parker i mean but I mean, you could you could put these two see and porkies came out like the same year as fame too so it's like literally the same scene but done completely Two different ways as directed by Bob Clark versus Alan Parker and what you're trying to get across. I just thought that was fascinating. And this one had a French horn, though. Well, that's, yes. And, of course, you know, I mean, in, in this movie, the joke is on the boys. The boys right. are being the assholes. I mean, that's the that's the, the gist of it is that they're being creeps, not that uh, we're not sympathizing with them. Speaking, Speaking of, of creeps, creeps the yeah. Irene Cara scene? The big scene. Um, everybody, I think anybody that knows this movie knows this scene of where she gets picked up by this casting director who is like, you know, and of course she falls for it because she, you know, he's, he's Oh, well he gives her such a great gab. Like, Oh, you, yeah. you know what I'm talking about? Of course she just agrees to all these. Yeah. What was all uh, filmmakers that she probably wouldn't know of, of really, but she pretends to, 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 to have like a, a real strong sense of film <laughs> and, and, yes. and performance. And I'm, and I'm guessing you really don't know. But I'm guessing she's not doing any productions at the time. So because the guy, 
because the guy says, you know, he, he recognizes her from, from, um, oh crap. I forget the name of the show, but she just goes along. She plays along with it because she's hoping it's going to get her somewhere, but she's probably even never done anything either. Right. 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 Yeah. yeah it's, it sounds like, yeah, right. And he, he, he talks her up at this diner and he gets her to come back to his place and shoot, uh, like presumably like an audition or test footage. And he makes her take her top off and she's crying through all of it. And it's just horrific. It's just an awful scene. And the, the worst part about it is, is that it's unresolved. Like there's well, the no movie is, there's no follow up scene of the guy getting punished. It's just a, a cautionary tale of like, Hey, look, you're in the big city. You're in the tough big city and you're, you're, you're naive. This could happen to you. And like, there's, that's it for Coco. Like she doesn't get. There's no. There's no. There's no resolution to. Well, she graduates. I mean, I, well, she graduates <laughs> but, I, but I mean, like that guy doesn't come. But like, right. I think in. I think in. A, in a, I think in. In a version of fame directed by someone not as concerned with the realism, you. She would go and get Bruno and right. get a bunch of the other students together, and they'd find this guy and beat him up. But that doesn't happen. That, that would happen that, in the TV that, show, not in the... That would happen. Like, right, this, this storyline just ends. It's, it's, oh, the footage of her taking her top off is it's just horrific. It's, well, the it's way so he shot it very well, where he's shooting the... Uh, you get to see what's happening in, in the monitor. Right. So it's... You're even... Blue and fuzzy. Further and, distance from it, and it yeah. just stays... It's a, it's a steady shot. It looks like a hostage video. Yeah, and it's it is heartbreaking. Also, the way apparently I'm supposed to, like uh, the way one auditions for the Film and Water Network. I understand. It. <laughs> True. Hey, you know we. <laughs> but I think, uh, but my my favorite character in the whole thing is Bruno, and he he really doesn't care after the first hour and a half. He really like his story just ends, and the whole thing is a setup. His, his his it's kind of a weird idea. Where he's going to be, he's like the new wave of musician. Like he brings his own instrument, you know, he's, he, he's all synthesizers and everything. And his rival is Mr. Shirovsky, the, um, played by Albert Haig, the very like, uh, like the, the, the traditional music teacher. And so sure. you're supposed to have these conflicts of styles and maybe they're going to resolve themselves somehow. Typically you would think Mr. Shirovsky comes to embrace this new wave of music and, um, and 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 Bruno, played by um, Lee Carreri, would maybe embrace more of a classical bent or something. But you never see anything except Bruno sort of giving in to, to Shirovsky's methods. Because after, while he and while he and Irene Cara as Coco continue to work together and make and make demos, his story as a student really doesn't go anywhere else. Right. And then he just graduates. So there's no. There's really no through line for him. For for Lee for for um for Leroy, um his 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 story climaxes when he if he fails out of the fame school, he's not gonna get this um like it's like a residency or something. He's offered the, the chance to dance with some company. And I don't know how or why that hinges upon his graduation, but it does. And he's trying to convince um Ann Mira to to give him a passing grade, only her she is literally at the moment like where her husband is possibly on his deathbed and she's and and it comes to a head and and she just says that he's selfish and all these kids think nothing about nothing but themselves and then he comforts her and then you have no idea how that's going to resolve itself either i don't even think he's in the final number i don't remember seeing him right i mean that's how the movie ends with this big sort of climactic number of a bunch of them all playing together but that's it like we don't find out what happens to any of them we don't know if any of them 
ever become a success. And that's, I mean, that's kind of what the movie's about. It doesn't really matter whether they did or do or not. It's about these kids expressing themselves through their art and then the only way they know how. And it doesn't really matter if any of them go on to do it professionally. It's about this moment in their lives. And so that's what Alan Parker's concerned about. Now, again, I haven't seen the TV show. I don't know if the TV show... Did the TV show feature some of the same characters? The TV show featured Coco, but she was played by an actress named Erica Gimple. Um, okay. Lee Carreri went on for a couple of seasons. Three, I think. Um, there's a character who's like uh, um, Doris, but it's a different name, but kind of the same Doris template. And, uh, and and Leroy's on throughout the six years. Debbie Allen, who has a very small role in this movie. I don't even think she really says much. She says no. a couple of things about Leroy's like, male stripper audition, essentially. Um, she's a huge part of the series. And I think right, one of, right, one of the execs on it. And then uh, Mr. Shirovsky's on there as well. And um, uh, Mrs. Sherwood, the character, is on, but she's played by a different character, not Anne Mira. Okay. All right. Yeah, and it ran for like what, like six five, seasons. six years? Yeah, that's a long and in syndication yeah. on top of it. By the way, that show knew how to end a, had how to end its series. That has one of the greatest sync final um, final scenes in in all of syndicated television. Wow. Do you want to tell us what it is, or do you want to go? Some of the old students come back because you know it's a four, it's a six year series, but you're only supposed to be there four years. <laughs> so right. get a little long in the tooth to be there. And um, some of the old cast members come back. They intermingle with some of the new cast members. And they do the, th- the fame theme as they exit, as they pull away from as, – as the camera uh, does a, a very slow um, tracking shot as it pulls away from, from, the, uh, from the cast and into the crew and pretty much a stage. They're performing oh, that's interesting. the fame theme song the entire time. Yeah, It's very oh, That sounds nice. Yeah, right, cool. All Written right. by Stephen Ira Bear, who would later go on to help uh, run Deep Space Nine and create it. Wow, okay. And, of course, they remade fame like about five, ten years ago or something. I never like saw that. that. But, uh, no, I haven't seen it either. But uh, Parker was not happy about that. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. His – because, you know, as, as you said, there weren't really – outside of, I think, um, Ann Mir, of course, who had done a lot of work by, by that point. But uh, – um, Barry Miller, who was in Saturday Night Fever, he plays Barry. There weren't really anyone who had done a lot of things here. And the, some of the students, like um, he, he, uh, Parker had encouraged a lot of the students from the actual performing arts school to um, to audition. So some of them found their way into this, including Isaac Mizrahi, the designer. Hmm. He plays the jester. Do you remember the court jester guy? Sort of. <laughs> no. And then my favorite my other favorite character is, is the young girl who auditions as O.J. Simpson's character. Oh, man. Towering Inferno. Oh, and boy. He's, and he's waiting for the, – the scene doesn't age well when you think of No. But, but, but the way she plays it as he's waiting for an elevator to arrive is genius. And she makes it into the show. I mean she makes it into the school. Yeah. She, well, she, she literally has the line, I'm O.J. Simpson. Like, yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, yeah. boy. <laughs> so. um, but he had this to say. I, I thought this was interesting. Um, uh, I'm going to read you something Parker had said about this. Um, to be frank, directing young people is not something I get pleasure from, even though it may seem so, considering the amount of work I've done in this area. At Midnight Express, I could take an actor like Brad Davis or John Hurt aside and explain what I needed and be pretty certain they could deliver each line. These kids were extremely self-obsessed, capricious, and irritating to work with. <laughs> also, the fluctuations in their performances, enthusiasm, and energy levels took me by surprise. It took me a long term to realize in New York that when an actor went off to do a line, they weren't going over the script. Hmm. Wow. 
And then he said, Irene Cara and Barry Miller were the most difficult. Irene because she fluctuated the most, being more comfortable in a recording studio, and Barry because he was full of fear. This manifested itself in a surly, bratty awkwardness that drove the crew nuts. There were three scenes where Barry had to break down, and each one was traumatic. Pinned up at the school on 46th Street was a hand-painted sign that said, pain is part of creating, and it had become a mantra for Barry. Interesting. Okay. But, yeah. So I, 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 I've always like this one and i i would recommend this i don't know if you would but. no i would i would it's it's again and, and it, it's like a lot of movies uh when you look at a you know movie from the 60s like it's a time capsule like you get to see what new york looked like in yeah. 1980 you know oh, it doesn't look like that anymore you know so yeah. uh yeah no i i did enjoy it i'm glad i finally got to see it it, it, was, it was definitely a it was definitely a pop culture moment. It won several Oscars. Of course, the word, the, the song fame won the, the, the Oscar for best song of that year. So, yeah, no, I'm very glad to finally uh, watch it. So thank you for recommending it. It's You're good. welcome. So, all right, well, we're going to take a break, and uh, we're going to run a trailer for the next movie, uh, which is 1982's Shoot the Moon. Stay tuned. The electricity of Midnight Express, the excitement of fame. One man has captured them both. His name is Alan Parker. He creates the kinds of films that have never happened before. Now, it's happening again. Why did Daddy leave us? Well, I don't think he left you. I think he left me. MGM presents Shoot the Moon, an emotional portrait of an American family with powerful performances by Albert Finney. This is my house. I fixed up this house. And Diane Keaton. Well, you're not at this house anymore, George. Remember, you walked out feet first. And a screenplay by two-time Academy Award winner, Bo Goldman. Are you going to let her get a divorce? I think I'm going to have to. What happens to me? It is honest, compelling, and uncompromising. It is a story of love, pain, anger, and tears, of needing of hoping, of facing the truth. I was never right for you, was I, George? It was like I sang all the music, but I never knew the words. There is one thing about marriage that hasn't changed. The way you hurt when it begins to fall apart. I loved you. God, I loved you. Albert Finney, Diane Keaton, in an Alan Parker film, Shoot the Moon. And we're back to talk about 1982's Shoot the Moon, uh, which Alan Parker directed, of course, after fame. This one stars Albert Finney and Diane Keaton as George and Faith Dunlap, a couple that is starting to, uh, their their 15-year marriage is starting to dissolve. And their uh, children, played by Dana Hill and Vivica Davis and Tracy Gold and Tina Yothers, uh, a bunch of famous names there, uh, have to watch as their parents uh, dissipate. And then, of course, uh, George picks up with a younger woman played uh, named Sandy, played by Karen Allen. And Diane Keaton's character, Faith, uh, starts a romance with the local handyman, Frank, played by Peter Weller, a pre-Robocop, pre-Buckaroo Banzai uh, Peter Weller. Uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I watched this movie because Karen Allen was in it. And I was fascinated. I've heard that. Yes. Yeah. Fascinated at the idea that, that Karen Allen would do kind of small drama, like a side part in a small drama like this, considering she was coming off of one of the biggest hits of all time. And I always assumed this was maybe the kind of thing that, as an actress, she wanted to do because she just wanted to be in this movie. And right. um, she actually confirmed that for me when I when I asked her about it, when I met her in April, which was great. Because I said, hey, I watched uh, Shoot the Moon. And she's like, oh, that's such a, that's a great movie. I said, yes, it sure is. So um, 
And she probably got a nice check for like three days' work. Right, she did. Written by Bo Goldman, the Oscar-winning uh, screenwriter Bo Goldman. Um, this movie, I Hoo-bah. yeah, <laughs> this this movie, I will admit, t- 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 going in, this movie uh-huh. is 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 tough going um, because why so? huh? I was gonna say why so, but you were gonna answer anyway. Yeah, I was gonna answer it because <laughs> because I mean the movie we never see George and Faith at a happy moment. Um, the, the movie opens with Uh-oh. George is an author and he's about to get this big, a big award and, uh, they are already, their marriage is already having problems. And we see that George at one point goes off into another room to take a phone call, presumably from his girlfriend, something that his daughter notices. So we never see George and Faith happy. That's not true. Well, well, uh, they, they have a couple of happy moments. But that's post their breakup, though. Oh yes. Okay. Sorry. Yes, I'm saying we right. never we never see them in their you know particularly like you know a, a good part of their marriage, and so this is a tough movie to watch because it's very painful. It's it's, it's a, yeah. It's it's brutal in some ways, and especially uh, the heavy load placed upon both within the story of the daughter, the oldest daughter, Sherry Dunlap, played by Dana Hill, who probably is most famous for being. Uh, Audrey in National Lampoon's yeah the second Audrey in National Lampoon's European Vacation, she's I mean look in a movie with Albert Finney and Diane Keaton and Karen Allen and Peter Weller all of whom I think are great actors, Dana Hill is tremendous in this movie yeah. the the load that is placed on that little actress to carry these scenes of emotional devastation because she's she's the oldest daughter and so the other three are a little too young to fully understand what what's happening but but. But Sherry sees it. Sherry understands it entirely, and she sees the pain that her father's actions are bringing upon the family, and particularly their mother. And it's... I was hooked into these characters from the beginning, um, even though this is... I, 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 I can't tell anybody, go watch this movie, because it's, it's not fun to watch. Well, I didn't... Hmm, I didn't find it that difficult. But you're right about how it's... It, I mean, it's definitely an emotional wallop. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, uh, Parker has, has Alan Parker has said that he he wanted it to be very much from the kids' point of view, and it certainly is. It's not um, well that well that well I, that's kind of true. It's not exactly from their point of view, but she does shoulder the emotional weight of the entire movie, and uh, it's, it's it's just an awkward it's an awkward movie I think because well well one you find out that. Love making with Albert Finney is, is, is like eating ice cream. <laughs> yes, Karen Allen's character Sandy refers to making love to the uh, seemingly eternally pickled George Dunlap as uh, like eating ice cream, which is a, I, that uh, that's not the phrase. He's I like a imagine. rucksack full of liquor. <laughs> <laughs> but, but somehow he won her heart. Uh, By can, the way, you, let's just talk about her. Uh, can we talk about the Karen Allen character for a bit? Sure. She hovers over this movie she karen allen herself is in three scenes basically yeah and a telephone conversation but her character is oh, spoken about in 85 percent of the movie and um i could definitely see why this why this would be an appealing role for her because she is the center of everything that happens even when she's not even around right and she's certainly the subtext of of, of the entire movie but I love how she's introduced because the – I think it's the oldest daughter, right, who says, is she pretty? Mm-hmm. And then the camera cuts to Karen Allen opening a door and you just see this warm, beautiful face, this smile. 
And you're like, yeah, wow, she is gorgeous. She's luminous in this movie. She's just luminous. She's she's kind of a little hippie-ish. I mean, this is 1982, so we're a little late for that. But She's divorced, too, um, right? Because she has a son. Mm-hmm. And um, But, man, she she has Finney's number. Like, it, it make no mistake about who is who is in control of these relationships. She's in control of three relationships, essentially. She's in control of uh, the relationship she has with Albert Finney, the, relation, the relationship Albert Finney has with Diane Keaton, and in kind of a way, the relationship Keaton has with, with RoboCop. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you can sort of see why um, Diane Keaton, when they were younger, would have been attracted to Albert Finney because he is, of course, he's the actor himself is a magnetic performer. I've always liked Albert Finney in every movie I've ever seen him in, pretty much. Uh, maybe not Looker. But, I mean, he's... Every he's, bar, he's been great. He is, he is a, to me, he is a, a tremendous actor, and he's probably one of these difficult geniuses that attract women because they're difficult. You know, I mean, he's, a, he's this renowned author. So you could probably right. see why women would be attracted to him despite he's, he's – it's probably really difficult to be around him. Yeah, he's um, got that don't, don't try to change me, baby. Yeah, right. He's a bad boy. You know, he's the ultimate bad boy. <laughs> a bad boy in a, in a tweed sweater. Right, and when you see that he has sort of traded in the older Diane Keaton for the younger, hotter, uh, doe-eyed Karen Allen, you think that, oh, well, he's just trading in, you know, like a lot of men would do – trade in you know the the old wife for the the new hot wife but there is a scene and we're jumping around but you can't help but there's a scene in this movie where as you mentioned karen allen's character sandy has completely got george's number and there's this scene of them in bed together where he's getting ready to leave and they talk about their relationship and she says to him george i love you but if this doesn't work out i'll go find somebody else and there's this shot back to Albert Finney, and he just looks utterly flummoxed because Karen Allen's character is just saying, hey, look, I do love you, but I'm not going to let this destroy me. And if it doesn't work, I'll find somebody else kind of like you, and I'll go with them. Like, she's completely clear-eyed. And she's about smiling. And when she's she smiling when she says it. And it's, <laughs> I mean, she just cuts him open. In fr- and, like this, and this is a guy, this is a character who's been dominating the proceedings to this point. And to watch that scene, she just just knocks him down, right? Just kneecaps him right then and there, and you're like, "Wow!" This, even though Sandy seems a little bit like a flipper to gibbet, she's not. She knows what she wants out of a relationship, and she's going to get it. And she's not going to put up with a lot of shit from some drunken author if she doesn't get it. It's, it's. I could see if you're Karen Allen, why you would want to take this part. I mean, I could see her agent saying. You really like you know? Don't you want to do something kind of like Raiders again? And she, no, I'm going to do this thing. It's no, it's I get a to great sleep little performance. Yeah. Oh my God, she's she is just terrific in this movie. I mean, absolutely. But I mean, the rest of the movie is great. I mean, Diane, Diane Keaton. The to me, it's like Diane oh, Keaton is wonderful. Like, kind of underrated. She, you know, like she's been she in so many great movies. And I don't know, like. Maybe it's because she doesn't get to do a lot of great stuff nowadays. But you think about all the Maybe. great movies she's been in. You know, well, she's and, great in she's great in everything. I, I even saw Baby Boom. Oh my God! The Godfather know? movies and Annie Hall and Looking for Mister Goodbar. Oh, I just I just saw Baby Boom and Red. Yeah, and Reds and I mean all these amazing films she's been in. There's a scene where she's in a tub and she's all by herself and she starts singing a Beatles song. Um, I forget which one it is. I think she's singing Blackbird maybe, and the camera just slowly 
zooms in on her, and I think it was Roger Ebert. I forget who what critic was. And no, no, it was on Eighties All Over, which I mentioned. And one of the hosts said that scene doesn't even feel like acting. That scene feels like we're just spying on Diane Keaton in this moment. She didn't She's, know. The, she was just getting high. She didn't know the camera was rolling. Yeah, yeah exactly. She was she taking is, a phone call. Oh my! The, watching these two snipe back at one at one another is again. It's very painful to watch, but I also found it utterly compelling because. I'm just fascinated at these two, how these two inter, interrelate with one another. And then you totally get why Weller, who's like kind of like a young model at this point in his career, right? But he's, he's like this far from modeling genes, essentially. He's just got that look. Mm. He's like a less handsome Christopher Lambert. Oh, now so come he's, on. <laughs> what? You're always everybody's always being compared to Chris, Christopher Lambert. In your well, mind. That, it's in my life. That's how it works. Um, but uh, anyway, like she's she's just kind of frumpy as frumpy as Dan Keaton could be. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But the whole time you're like, yeah, I get it, man. I get why you would fall head over heels for this woman within five minutes of meeting her. Why you get all f- and 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 to see, gosh, she is so amazing in this movie. When because to see her get nervous around around a. Uh, uh, Peter Weller, when they're, when they're kind of having their first date, he's been invited to have dinner with the family. And um, she's like a teenager. Like you would buy – like she could she could play 16 and she's what, in her 30s at this point? Mm-hmm. But the way she just carries this this like uh, – this girlish nervousness and, and uh, how she doesn't even know what to say or do and like what do I do with my hands kind of a thing. Yeah, that was my favorite scene because it felt like – I didn't feel like – like I forgot I was watching a movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're they're so they're they, their scenes together are are remarkable, and you could see how she is falling for a guy completely the opposite of George, because uh, but a young George, she says, she says he's like a young George. But I mean, is, I, well, do you think? I mean, is he? Because he I'm seems sure. like a real <laughs> simple guy. He doesn't seem like a difficult genius. He's he's the handyman. But right. he seems very plain spoken. I mean, you know, I mean, he seems very like he seems very direct. There's that scene where they're sitting together and he's basically like, you know, he's like, can I come over and kiss you? And she's like, oh, yeah, well, maybe. And you mentioned the girlish thing. Yeah. But it's I don't know. He seems like he's just like a, I don't want to say a simple guy because that sounds like I'm trying to insult him. But he's not George Dunlap's character, like Albert Finney's character. He knows he's sort of like this creative genius, and he carries himself that way. Well, but Peter right. Weller's character is just like I'm just a simple guy. This is what I like. I like you. Do you want to be together? And I, it's that's a very different energy. And he seems very calm and rep- I mean, there's throughout this movie, Albert Finney's character is always on the verge of violence, and sometimes not on the verge, full on into violence. There's a scene where a they girl. there's a scene where they smash a bunch of plates at each other and Diane Keaton is like smashing a plate for everyone that he smashes and then of course there's this whole thing about where he wants to get the daughter a typewriter for her birthday the oldest daughter the yeah. oldest daughter and then he gets her one and she won't accept it because she's basically like F off and he goes on an absolute rage and beats the daughter beats the mother it's that scene is again I'm, I'm really making this movie sound like it's no fun to watch but I mean, oh, it's, it's a comedy though it's yeah, a musical well, number yeah, that, of course yeah, they break into fame in the middle of it it seemed like a discord they note, do but, but who you know no, I mean it's it. I, like I said I, I found this movie utterly compelling even though it, again it was not a fun watch but it's, it's a bunch of actors really at the top of their game I mean it's all of them just on full bore and as I mentioned again right. Dana Hill is 
you know, in a league with these guys. And that's, that's amazing. I mean, you mentioned that the film is sort of from their point of view. I mean, it is and it isn't. The title, Shoot the Moon, is a reference to a game that they played as a kid. And it's kind of an offhand reference, but it's from the kid's point of view. It's from Dana Hill's right. character's point of view. So that's where they get the, the title from. Because I, I was watching the movie. I was like, why is this movie called Shoot, Shoot the Moon? She's afraid she's going to get replaced by the stepson, by Karen Allen. Right, Allen's. because Karen Allen's, right has a son. And, you know, so – and then there's uh, – the one scene that I've saw, most critics were very kind to this movie, but the one scene that critics weren't kind to, and I could see where they're coming from, is the restaurant scene, where they have dinner together again, and it's almost played as comedy, because they start screaming at one another, and there's like another table with another couple, and they are like, right. hey buddy, we are quiet down, and it is, it almost is like a broad comedy. It, it goes to the Laurel and Hardy first, <laughs> it yeah. does, yeah. That, that scene kind of doesn't work, and then right after that, they sleep together again. Um, but that's that's very like that's real, right? Right, they, they, right. Like a fallback, you know. They sort of slip up, and so and then the daughter sees it too. The daughter sees that they've sort of uh, briefly reconciled. Well, not not reconciled, but they've sort of fallen back into old patterns. Was your favorite scene where the little girl is reading the Richie Rich comic book? I did enjoy looking at the girl reading the Richie Rich comic book. It, it's funny. There's a guy. Um, there's a what's his name? The character in in Fame is reading a comic book as well. Uh, we never see what comic book it is, but that seems to be a recurring theme in uh, Alan Parker's movies. I'll have to see if, uh, if there's any uh, comic books in the Turkish prison in Midnight Express yeah. or anything. Well, I don't, you don't want to know how those are. Uh, how those are <laughs> but uh, no, I, I thought that I, I, this has two of your thing. It has you in it as a, as a young boy, your comic <laughs> adventures, and it has Karen Allen. It does. What do you think of the scene, the one scene that has Karen Allen and Diane Keaton together where they accidentally cross paths while they're out shopping it's so awkward and then they quickly depart oh man diane keen is just like i don't want anything to do with this woman like just you know and karen allen's character is trying so hard to be free you know be friendly i mean they talk about there's the whole scene where she she talks about what it's like making love to your father which is like creepy as all all get out um yeah don't answer that question karen yeah no just yeah you can just say (laughs) it's it's none of your concern kids um but in the, the, what do you think of the, this movie? The, there's this recurring thing going on that oh, Frank. I think it ended. Yeah, we got to talk about the ending. Yeah, well, Frank is Frank is building a tennis court because we find out from the beginning of the movie that George wants to put in a tennis court, and then after they divorce, uh, Faith goes ahead and says, "Well, we're going to get the tennis court anyway," and it's built by Frank. So, for, and then they start having a romance, and so the, ten, the the movie ends with the tennis court being built, and they have this nice party. And you think that George has come to some sort of peace with this right. uh, because he shows up and he's friendly and everything. And he seems to be okay with Frank and the fact that Frank and Faith are together. And, and he resolves things with his daughter. He resolves things, right. He resolves things with his daughter. His daughter gets this, there's this amazing scene of them on a dock uh, where they talk about, you know, where she's talking about how scared she is. And you think that, that they've come to this uneasy detente, you know, that you're like, okay, there's been a lot of pain, but it's it's on its way to healing. And then, uh, <laughs> and then, um, if anybody's going to watch this movie and you don't want it spoiled, don't listen to this part. But it, to me, it's hard to discuss this movie without talking about the ending. Albert Finney gets in his car and smashes the tennis court with his car. I mean, and the gazebo, and the gazebo just demolishes it and goes on a rampage, which then leads to Frank. Feeling like he has to defend, I guess, partly Faith and himself. And he, the kids. And the remember, kids. He's grown, he's grown attached to the girls by this point. Right, right. 
and he starts beating the living crap out of George, because of course, you know, Albert Finney's this old drunk guy, and Peter Weller is Peter Weller in prime condition. Right. He starts beating the living shit out of George, and the movie ends with George laying there practically half beaten to death, and he reaches out to his wife Faith, and she just stands there, and the movie freeze frames. I so was, what do you think happens? I, I, well, I, first of all, I was devastated by that ending because you're, you're so happy that they've reached this right. fragile piece. And then, and then to watch Albert Finney just detonate it, you're just, it, to me, it's just tragic. I feel little girls rush to his side yeah. and then they, they're, they're trying to make sure that their dad's okay. So the four, the four girls are, um, just kind of holding him and trying to help him just comfort him. And yeah, then he reaches up for Diane Keaton. As, as grim as it is, I, I think that what happens afterwards is that ends the relationship between Frank and Faith because Frank has shown a side of himself that Faith maybe doesn't want to see. The fact that he was like went on such a tear, although I thought it was justified. But at the same time, Faith can't get back with George either because he's a mess. So I think, like, I think it's almost like George's final act is just to destroy everything. Like he's just he just leaves nothing but wreckage in his in his wake. Huh. Do you not with that do you have a different take on it? I want to say I would hope that Faith leaves, but I think she would take him back just to make sure George doesn't kill himself. So it's this sort of toxic thing that goes on forever? Like, you know, yeah. Oh yeah. Maybe yeah. so. Maybe so. Like I said it's it's a brutal movie. It's a I mean this you know, look, in nineteen eighty two divorce was still kind of a new topic. It was. I was about to say that, yeah. You know, Kramer versus Kramer was a big movie. I mean it was the big know, the, the big hit for young Rob Kelly. Yeah, that's right. Yes, yes. A big a big part of my uh, my sexual development, Kramer versus Kramer. Um <laughs> But I mean, it like it was. I mean, I mean, think about it. you could never make a movie like this nowadays because it's like well, it'd, be, it's, it'd be like, oh, they're divorced, no big whoop. Right? Yeah, that's it. That's the whole thing. Like that's the movie. It's about a couple getting divorced. But in 1982, that was enough of your movie to just show this family as it falls apart. And I mean, I, I, I really did like this movie. I thought Karen Allen was great in it. I, I get again. I can yeah. see why she took the part. It's and I love Albert <laughs> Finney. I love Diane Keaton. Peter Weller is great in this. Dana Hill. Everybody. But it's it's that it's it is unsparing. I mean, Alan Parker is just showing you what can happen when love dies and the the, the wreckage that it can cause. It is but yet again, uh, two for two for un- unresolved movies for him. Right, right. It just sort of ends in this sort of midpoint, and you're like, what the hell's gonna? Yeah, it's a it's a. Like I said, I, I was so wrapped up in these characters that when George gets in his car and, and puts his foot on the gas, I was like, what are you doing? Like, right, because there's a point where he stops. He's driving. He's backing up. And you think, okay, he's, he's fine. And then he stops the car. And you just think, wait, wait what? <laughs> yep. And you, you see what's happening in Finney's mind. He's that good. You think, oh, no, don't do it. Don't do it. And then he does it. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And any... Because any confidence that he that he'd earned, any trust, immediately he just sets fire to it. Yep. Yeah. It's great. His, his, so his, great. He has such a massive ego that it's like I think it's the idea that his wife could be happy without him. He can't live with that. He just. I yeah. mean, and of course, the idea would be if you really love somebody, if you really, really do, I and mean, this is the mother of his children, <laughs> you would be happy that she's found somebody else. You know, you, you, you don't want her to be happy. I mean, you, you're the one who blew up the relationship, so you can't be mad at her. 
that she's gone and find somebody else, but he's too immature to handle that. He wants to go off with his chippy, Karen Allen, but he also wants his wife to sort of just be ready for him whenever he might get a, a wild hair to come back to her, which is ridiculous. Which is or absolutely because absurd. he also knows that his days are, you know, he's not in a secure place with Allen at all either. Right. He wants. He kind of wants Diane Keaton to be ready for him in case the one the relationship with Sandy blows up, which it might, because she tells him, she tells him, you know, you can, right, from that scene with Sandy, you know that Sandy's not going to put up with a lot of shit, she's going to date Karen Allen, you know it's a bull ride, you're not going to last eight seconds, that's right, maybe you do, maybe you don't, but that's it, that's right, I mean, right, I mean, uh, Ed George could have asked Indiana Jones, look what, look what he gets if you cross Karen Allen, you get a sock to the jaw, man, you know, you're not going to, she's not going to put up with this nonsense, so yeah, he wants, he wants Diane Keene to be ready for him at all times, and he can't live with the idea that that this guy Frank and there might be some literal territorialness to it that well, Frank sure. Frank That's has, his house. Yeah, right. That Frank <laughs> has Frank has left his imprint on George's house that he has paid for, which he mentioned several times throughout the movie. Yeah. You know, he's like, I paid for this. I my money, my hard work paid for this. And here's Frank coming in, literally, you know, leaving his mark on a giant chunk of the house. Like he can't live with that either. I mean the guy is an emotional wreck. And, you know, I mean, again, look what he's, look what he's doing. And it said, everybody here is just, it's just tremendous. I watched, I, I was just totally caught up in this movie. I just absolutely, I thought it was everything that I'd heard it was. I, again, I was so, and I was like, I mean, everybody knows how much I love Karen Allen, but I was impressed by I've her. Heard. I was impressed by her, her like career chops that she would do this. Yeah. Because, you know, she could have just cashed in and done a bunch of, you know, similar movies, but she didn't. She did this small drama, a small part in a small drama um, with a bunch of Quartermain movies. Yeah, she could have done right. High Road to China or something. (laughs) But I mean, this is, I think this is a great movie. Again, I know I've made it sound like it's not terribly fun to watch, and it isn't, but it's a bunch of great actors, all all, on all thrusters in a really really compelling story. Would you recommend it as well? I would. I would. I would, Richie. (laughs) <laughs> that's right. Yeah, again, again, appearance by by Richie Wright. So, so that's uh, that's shoot the moon uh, from 1982. So again, we're going to take another break, and we're going to play the trailer for our third and final Alan Parker film, 1991's The Commitment. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> I know you're so excited about this. The Commitments. We'll be right back. Hey, what's this? What's what? Have you got soul? If so, the world's hardest working band is looking for you. Contact Jay Rabbit. I'm putting a band together. Do you need a singer? Wise men say... Who are your influences? Led Zeppelin. Sinead O'Connor. Barry Manilow. Joan Bias. Joni Mitchell. uh... Wings. Well, what kind of music are we going to be playing, Jimmy? Soul. Soul? That's what you've got to measure up to, lads. Well, like, maybe we're a little white. See if you could play before I pay for them. You're trying to tell me you play with BB King, Marta Reeves, Sam Cooke, Aldous Redding. Lads, you're looking at the commitment test. Brilliant management, brother Rabbit. <laughs>
professional basis. <laughs> How are we professional if we've never been paid? It feels much better being an unemployed musician than an unemployed pipe fitter. All you gotta do And I'm proud. And we're back with the third of our uh, Alan Parker triple feature. And as, as we promised, we're talking about 1991's The Commitments. Now, I'm going to get the sense that, David, you have a lot to say about this movie, so I'm just going to be quiet. And, this is and, one of my top ten. And you can talk about this movie because time. you have been bugging me to watch this movie for years. This is the Highlander of music for me. Okay. <laughs> okay. Go right ahead. So tell us why The Commitments is so great. Well, do you want to tell people what it's about? Well, all right, sure. It's, again, it's a, it's a drama, comedy, sort of musical uh, it's about a guy named uh, Jimmy Rabbit who wants to start a band, and he has opens auditions at his house. And it's set in Ireland. Uh, that's the, that, in, that's in Dublin. In Barry, Dublin, it's part Dublin. of Barrytown. Right. Yeah. This right. This working class neighborhood, and it's a guy that wants to start a, a soul band. That's his. I mean, they're all white people, but he wants to start a soul band. That's the whole idea of the of the commitments. And once again, like in Fame, no opening credits other than just directed by Alan Parker and the writer. No no cast. We just bang right into the. Right into the movie, so I think it very thematically some stuff similar to to fame. So, so yeah, you. Why did you want to talk about this one so much? <sighs> okay, you know how you are about comics. I, I vaguely yes. That's how I am about music. I think, okay. and there are a few ways to sort of share the enthusiasm and what I think that music does for and to people. That does a better. There's there's no better way to explain it than this movie. Um, when you look at the town of Dublin, or the city of Dublin, I should say, not a town. And what all these people are going through in their lives, I mean, they're like a check away from homelessness, some of these people, right? Right, right. And there's, we can get into some of the characters later in some of the scenes, but there's, um, there's a sense of real desperation and the threat of real life just crushing you at any given moment that the music allows them to, can help them escape from it the way you too escape from it, right? Just you kind of become this amazing success and you write your own ticket to wherever, or it helps you escape from it for the three or four minutes or however long you're singing or performing these songs. And to me anyway, music's always been that universal thing that you don't have to speak the same language. You don't have to um, necessarily understand the same things, have the same backgrounds, but it can hit you in the same way. And uh, there's a purity in that. That's why, and and this movie is nothing but the expression of that. Right. When did you first see this movie? Did you see it when it was in theaters? I saw it when it was on video. Okay. So shortly after, um, it was in the uh, the video store that I came to work in later. See episode number. I don't know. What uh, yeah, our video store episode. Yes. Um, uh, had a had a, they would have like a, a wall for ninety nine cents, and the commitments was there, and um, I was just really curious. I thought it. There was nothing that I knew about it. I just thought, I mean, an Irish band, so what? And then I rented it and just fell in love with it. And uh, part of it, part of the reason I rented it was because Col- Cole Meaning was in it. Right, of course. And I knew Brian, from yeah. Star Trek, the Deep Space Nine, from Deep Space Nine and um, the Next Generation. Well, at that point, it just been the Next Generation. And 
yeah, it just it just it just knocked my socks off. It's it, one of the the similarities of obviously from with it compared to fame is that you've got these people to whom you know at least, at least with these kids it's just music. It's not perform. It's not acting or anything anything else like that. But the idea of the performing is giving you know their voice and you know, this is how they're. Yeah. But the fame kids are have this. They're professional actors. <laughs> right. They they are looking at this as like this because this is what's going to be their life's journey. And these people don't have that. These people are leave, leading, as you mentioned, like kind of almost one meal away, you know, one paycheck away from being homeless. They're leading these very hard scrabble lives, and they're not using music as a like, oh, this is gonna this is going to be our ticket out i think they're this is just about pure creative expression i mean obviously they'd love to do it i mean they if the if the commitments became a band and they became the next u2 they'd take it but i don't get the sense that any of these characters are really thinking like that that they're, they're well, thinking De- kind of De- deco is okay all right but i mean most of them are just doing it kind of as a as a lark to a certain extent. yes yeah well i think you're cheapening it a bit but i'll well, go with cheapening it. it why why is that cheapening it i don't think because it's i think the promise of something better is what keeps them going and ultimately it's their own personalities and De- and declan the uh who suffers from what jimmy page calls lsd lead singer disease is what helps, drive the, <laughs> helps drag drive the band apart but um it's uh well let's so okay uh what was your question exactly well just i just think that it's a little different from fame and that that these i don't think these characters for the most part are thinking they're going to get out of their lives through music. I think they're doing it because they have to express themselves. Ah, okay. But I just don't get the sense they're, they're like looking at this as like a career path, unlike the kids from Fame who are fully expecting to become the next big Broadway sensation. I don't sense that these characters are like that. I mean, I guess the lead kid, the lead guy is, but, but most of the rest aren't. Mean- yeah, I mean, but everybody else I think is kind of doing it because – yeah, they like it and they like doing it, and it's sort of like, well, what, yeah, and they have something to look forward to in this kind of like kind of grim existence. I mean, Alan Parker shoots this movie in these really grab drays. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, I mean, it's this this town does not look like a fun place to to be in. But it's surrounded by music. There is almost like not a point in this movie where something isn't playing somewhere. Right. It's that's what I loved about it too. That it's like just wall to wall sound and music and. Everyone comes to get the other thing is, as I said, I played a little bit of piano. I know barely any guitar, but to me, I mean, you know, I write professionally, I've done some artwork and I can look at something like the Sistine Chapel and know I'm never going to be able to do that, mm-hmm. but I know how it's done. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I can understand how you can go from A to that or from a blueprint to that. I don't, for the life of me, cannot understand how a man can one day sit at a piano and compose yesterday, bring that to a studio and then another guy's going to say, "Hey, some strings," and he writes up some some uh, some some composition, and then you get this thing that's just bigger and better than everyone who tried to do something with it. So when and I see that like in this movie where there's a few times where the band really comes together, and they finally come together right before they come to blows. Mm-hmm. But there's a magic. There's just like a switch that you get to see in this movie where you have all these different individuals and, you know, with some similar to dissimilar motives and they come together and they just build this thing that they don't understand necessarily that they, that they can replicate, but they can't create exactly. 
by themselves. Right, because they're a cover band. We haven't mentioned right. that. They're, they're doing all right. cover, soul covers. So it's uh, not like – it's not a, a construction of music or a deconstruction of music. Rather, it is the lovemaking of music, I think. Mm-hmm. That's why I love this movie. When, when, when they do um, show me a, um, a man that loves a good woman and everything just crystallizes into this moment and they are all just playing so well together and it feels real because of the way Alan Parker shot it. And it just feels like, yeah, that's, I want to fucking do that. That's why I love it. I want to know how to do that. I want to be that shit. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've always I've mentioned on Podzilla a thousand times. Like, I have no. What's that inc- show again? What? Sorry. Yes, I have no inkling on how to make music. Like, I to me, it's all just magical. I mean, I, and I know people that it have is. Done, I know people that have done it, and they're like, no, it's just you know, here's this chord and this chord, put them together. But to me, I'm like, how you know how to stretch the words, where to put them? Yeah. In these pl- locate. It's just completely, utterly baffling to me. Um, Listen, I don't know if you know this, but I love a band called Fastball. I've heard of that, yes. Yeah, you've heard, yeah. And uh, did I tell you that two of the members were in my car once? Yes, you have told me that story yeah. many times. I have? Yes. Okay. Well, I remember – well, one thing is when I started my car, I thought, oh, please don't have a fastball CD in. Because <laughs> <laughs> that, that's just weird and sad. But we had a Nick – but I had a Nick Lowe CD in, in thankfully, and um, the, um, the Abominable Showman. And uh, – we were just talking about songs and, and music, and I finally told Tony Scalzo, um, I said, well, you know, you, you guys don't realize, like, how huge this is for me to be taking people who create this thing that I love and just talking to you about it like it's nothing. And then Tony says, oh, David, they're just songs. And I thought, what? Yeah, they're just songs. Oh like, my how God. is that even? Like, how do you, how do you reduce and then I thought about it, like, he doesn't know what I feel when, when, mm-hmm. when, when I, he doesn't know that, like, all the pain, that, 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 the, the album, all the pain, um, uh, money, money can buy, like, saved me from a depression 20 years. You know what I mean? Like, he mm-hmm. doesn't know what's going on in my head. I don't know why I would expect that. But I, I would think he would understand about, like, the properties of music. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, surely, mm-hmm. surely this hit you too. It's somewhere for, from somebody else, not from your own stuff, maybe, but like I don't know, a, a Beatles song. <laughs> you know what mm-hmm, I mean? Like, mm-hmm. isn't that the thing that lit your fire? You right, know? right, yeah, yeah. You you tend to think that um, musicians that who create work that you enjoy, like it's a two way street. Like they know you and you know them, and it's like no, it no, you know their work. That's it. That that's the only yeah. direction it goes in. Uh, but like, don't you know I made out with a girl to track seven? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Why did you write that song about me? We, I have no idea <laughs> what you're talking about. I don't know you at all. I didn't write anything about Yeah, it's, it's it, that is a, a weird realization. I mean, again, I've mentioned that on Pod Dylan a bunch of times that, you know, if you ever, people that have met Bob Dylan, the worst thing you could do to him is go up to him and be like, oh my God, you're the best thing. Awesome, Mr. Tambourine Man. Oh my God. It's a, like he doesn't, he can't, you know, he can't relate to that. Like he wants to, and so, and from what I've read, we're getting off the commitments a little, but it's the idea that, no, like... No, but this is the thing. This right, is the right. thing. Is that the thing that he wants to talk about, like, when you do interviews with him, is music. Is the music part. And if you've yeah. seen interviews with that him... Stars. Like the la- <laughs> like the la- Yeah. Like, the last interview he did for <clears throat> Rolling Stone, I think, is a giant put-on. Like, I think he's just playing a character, and I think he's putting that, the, the interviewer on. I think it was Grill Marcus, because I think he was just sort of doing it as he's playing Bob Dylan and sort of being difficult. But then around the same time, he did an interview with uh, a God of all things, I think like AARP magazine. 
And that guy's retired. Yeah. And that guy just talked to him about music, like just being a working musician. And that seemed like a much more genuine Bob. Like he seemed much more straightforward, wasn't playing any sort of verbal games. And I, to me, that almost was like a key of like, well, this is what the guy really wants to talk about. He doesn't want to talk about being a legend or, you know, what do you think happens to the soul after you die? Like he doesn't want to talk about that weird stuff. He wants to talk about chord changes and covering songs that he likes and right. what the records that he liked growing up and um, kind of snapping back to the movie uh, the, the scene, I like the scene where um, the, the people are showing up to what's his name's house for auditions for uh, Jimmy's house. The rabbit house, yeah. Rabbit's house. And they all, it's like, it's this series, it's this montage of weird looking people and they all name music that you wouldn't think they would like. You know, there's like the kid, the kid with the mohawk and he's like, oh, I like Spando Ballet and then Door Slam. And then Sinead O'Connor, door slam. And it's all this, and it's all about, yeah, this is what gets these people going. And hardly any of them look like the kind of person that would like the music that they're referencing. Well, they're also desperate to answer correctly, you know. And, and it's funny that he doesn't get anybody out of the auditions. No, right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the way the band comes together is you have the two characters, um, uh, Outspan Foster, played by noted musician Glenn. Has, is it Has- Hassard? Is that how to pronounce it? Glenn Hassard, I thought it was. From yeah, once. From, from once, yes. Yeah. Another great movie. And um, Dick, uh, Dick Mass, who plays Billy Mooney, and they, they start off, they, they're a part of a trio called And, And, And. <laughs> and they're trying to get rid of their lead singer, and they want Jimmy to manage them. And it's Jimmy, as you said earlier, who decides, well, we're going to play Soul. And then they, they, they happen upon, you never, you never understand how they meet him, but they, they find their sax player. And then um, the trumpet player is believes that he's uh, divinely uh, told to come to, to them. And he's this old guy named Joey, Joey the Lips. Yeah, the Lips, yeah. Fagan, played, Fagan, yeah, Joey Fagan. It was Fagan, who supposedly played the trumpet part on All You Need Is Love. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and then um, Jimmy, Jim, Jimmy wrangles uh, the commitment at the the um the three the, the three support singers. Well, actually, amazing singers in their own right. I wouldn't even call – I think it's unfair to call them, like, the support singers because they – they do have their own songs, and um, he really wants one. He, he has one. He knows one. One of the three girls, the one girl that can bring the girl that will bring the band together, because they're all in love with her, and her name is Melda Quirk. And uh, Melda and um, but Bernie, the uh, the kind of linchpin of the three commitment girls, also brings uh, oh the delightful, the delightful Natalie, played by Maria Doyle Kennedy, who has one of my favorite singing voices of all time, and. Um, and then they, you know, they get their p- pianist, they get their lead singer, who by, c- can you believe he was 16 years old, that guy? Really? Sound like that? Yeah. Andrew Strong. His is a great story because if you and I have talked about this. If you ever want a role, don't bring somebody else. Yes, exactly. Because um, you're not going to get it. Yeah. The person you Andrew, bring is going to get it. Andrew's dad brought Andrew and Andrew's dad was a well-known Irish musician and he tried out. I'm guessing for the Joey the Lips part because there's certainly nothing else. Or maybe he's he, – you know what? If the kid's 16, let's say he was in his 30s. So maybe he could – anyway. Um, but he didn't get any. He says, well, have you heard my son? And his son has this Otis Redding sound. It's 16 years old, and it's amazing. That guy's vocals are amazing. He's like, like um, Paul Rogers who sounded like he was 50 years old at 19. Anyway. And he ended up getting the role. He ended up getting the role. Right. And not the fun. Right. It's never do that. Never bring someone with you. It's it's (laughs) always going to put the the whammy is on you at that point. It also bears noting that 
out, only there are only two actors in this, three actors in this movie. Um, Colin Meany, the guy who plays Joey the Lips, Johnny Murphy, and I never know how to pronounce his name correctly. Brona Gallagher? She, uh, Bernie McLaughlin. I think, McLaughlin. I think it is Brona, yeah. I think yeah. that's right. They're the only ones who are actors. Everyone else is a musician who then became an actor through this movie. Wow, I didn't know that. That's amazing. Wow, that's, again, that's uh, Alan Parker knowing how to find some talent. That's pretty, you know, like that's, a, that's a pretty amazing thing that you transformed all these people's lives through this one movie. But, yeah, I mean, again, like a very typical Alan Parker, it's got a very naturalistic feeling. Again, this is everybody. There isn't any new person to this world. Like, you're just dumped into this part of Dublin, and you have to – I mean, I'll admit, the first time I watched – the first time I tried to watch this movie, like, well, like a year ago – it was on Netflix back when Netflix had movies, and I, <laughs> I, I couldn't get through it. Like I was like, why not? I just, I first of all, the, I found the accents impenetrable, even though I'm Why're Irish. I was just like, oh, I didn't know how to do. Oh, wait a minute, yeah, sir. Yeah, I, I was like, what the hell are they talking about? It was all Robert just... Francis Kelly. You can't watch a movie about I. You've been to Ireland like ten times. <laughs> it's it's Evelyn Robert Evelyn Kelly. Oh, probably. Um, but, but but then it's, yeah, again, maybe I just wasn't in the mood to appreciate. It. But again, it's it's like fame. There isn't a new person who shows up and is like our tour guide. This is just Alan Parker's. Like here's the world, sink or swim, you know, and that's it. And I I, I like that. I like that immersive feeling that he gives his movies. You know, I think that's. I mean, he doesn't do, do that with Shoot the Moon necessarily, but for the fame, he certainly does, and for this, uh, he does as well. I, I like that. Well, uh, Dublin is a character. Right. It's another character. That you'd, I, I know people use that as a cliche all the time. Like, Metropolis is a character. Gotham's a character. But Dublin is very much the character because it paints the, the landscape of what everyone is working against and through the entire time. Um, the other reason I love this movie so much is because – can we – I guess we can be spoilers or sure, about it, right? Sure, sure, Like, sure. they don't make it. They like, uh, like, like that thing you do. Did you, have you seen that? Yes, I have. Part of what makes that movie so great is that it doesn't work out. This movie is the same way, in a much better sense in that you see you see everything that's going to tear them apart from the minute they assemble. Everybody hates the lead singer. They, 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 they go through two drummers because of the lead singer. The, idea, the, the fact that they're playing music, they talk about how much, of, uh, how much sex is involved in playing their music, and sex is what drives them apart too. So everything that, they, that, they're, that they're working toward and, and cautioned against is exactly the thing that tears them apart. Mm-hmm. There's a line in the at the end of the movie when they do like the flash forwards a little, and we see what happened yeah. to everybody. There's a line that's just kind of a tossed off line, but I, it really jumped out at me is when uh, Imelda gets married, and we see her, and we see her at like literally at the ceremony, and the voiceover says her new husband doesn't let her sing anymore, and it was just like it's not meant to be a big line, but I, I really found that tragic. That first, because we see, as you mentioned, we see the girls sing. They they're great. They sing these amazing harmonies, and clearly they enjoy it. And the idea that like she would marry a guy who doesn't let her sing anymore, like what kind of a dick is that? That he just he marries this woman, but he won't let her sing. Like what a jerk! And well, you see how what how big a jerk he is because he doesn't even want her to be in the band. He's right. complaint. You don't see you don't see necessarily a lot of their family lives. Um, except for, um, you see a few of them and they're always, they're, they're always hilarious. Like Joey's, Joey's very strange mom, who's apparently not doing well, but who, um, applies her, her, her makeup with, with like paintbrushes essentially, right. or, uh, or Bernie's home life where she's the one person old enough to work and her mom's got like six kids and her dad's in the, in the hospital. 
And then Jimmy, Jimmy's family, of course, you see everybody, including a very young Sharon Core. Oh, right. Um, yeah, yeah. The Cores the core are in this. Actually, all three of them. Right. All four of them are in it, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, you, you, you don't really get a chance to see of how, how their family is really working out. But, um, but Imelda, that character of Imelda, she's, she's in a better place. Her family's in a better place financially. We meet her at a wedding or we meet five of the commitments. Uh, to varying degrees, and um, her sister is getting married because her sister's knocked up. So you 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 know immediately what's like what's at stake for everyone and her family, and uh, you know that that's her fate. Her fate is shown is, is shown to you in the first like five minutes of meeting her. Like this is what's gonna happen to Imelda too. Yeah, it's sad. Um, did you notice uh, the Alan Parker cameo in the movie? Yes, there's a wall of Alan Parker movies at the video store where Sharon works. It's Alan Parker week at the video store, so you see uh, the covers of uh, uh, Midnight Express. Of um, somebody sings uh, Fame at one point. Somebody sings a Fame song. I'm gonna live till Tuesday. That was uh, that was Micka Wallace that everybody's afraid of. <laughs> and, uh, um, God, there was a lot of I forget. There was a lot of uh, yeah. There were a couple of visual references, and one that your friend um, and mine, Ryan Daly, will appreciate a uh, a shot of the well in the background of uh, the movie Hello Again, starring one <laughs> Shelley Long. <laughs> um, but I mean, but Alan Parker is at the end in the recording studio. Oh, that's right. Yeah, uh, with, when, with, when, with the, at Egypt Records. Yeah, when when Deco is singing and he's a, he's the guy at the board and he storms off. So. Yeah, uh, very Hitchcockian cameo. And oh, he loves himself. He puts himself like I, I forget to say this. In Shoot the Moon, there's a shot of uh, uh, another shot, but in, in uh, the oldest girl's uh, bedroom is is a poster of of Pink Floyd's The Wall. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, he's always constantly referencing him. He loves himself. <laughs> um, no, I think it's it's a terrific movie, and like they like the commitments, like. They've come back, right? You you wanted you mentioned that to me. You sent me some video. Like they're well, they've done tours together or, okay. or something like that. Okay, much like the monkeys, you know, some people decided that it might be a good idea if we carry this on musically. Um, two of the guys, the original, the guy who was the original drummer, Animal, and um, and uh, and the um, and uh, what was his name? I can't believe I'm forgetting his name. Um, Billy Mooney, Dick Massey. They formed the stars of the commitments, so they tour as the commitments. And then uh, another guy who was, um, oh, Derek Scully. Um, I'm sorry, not Derek Scully. Uh, uh, Micka Wallace, whose real name is Dave Finnegan, has Dave Finnegan's The Commitments. Wow. And he, <laughs> and, and he tours with, with these other musicians. But for the 20th anniversary of the movie, uh, a bunch of the cast got back together and did a tour of Ireland. And I think everyone made it back except um, uh, Maria Doyle Kennedy, who plays Natalie. I think she she was shooting the Tudors or something. But pretty much the entire band came back together. And what's sad is the guy who played Jimmy Rabbit, um, Robert Arkins, is a great singer in his own right. He's the one who sings the um, Treat Her Right song that you hear when the song when the movie starts. Right. He doesn't get to sing it all during the movie, but he's on the he's on the the two soundtracks. But yeah, so they they so they kind of kept it going for. A few years afterward, Andrew Strong still sings a lot of those songs, but he, you know, he he does his own music. But he, he does some, he does try a little tenderness at every on, at every concert. I think. Okay. Have you seen the other? Because there are other, there are two other films that you are that sort of exist in the commitments universe because they're written all by Roddy Doyle. Uh, well, the, the okay. Author. That's here's the, you know how you and I talked about that show, uh, actors who play the same characters in, in, in 
in movies that weren't sequels to one another, whatever whatever the idea was. Um, Col- Colomini played the, the character of, uh, the of, father, of right, the father. father. He's the same father who's in the snapper and who's also in the van. The van, right, Mister Mister Rabbit. Yeah, Sharon is this, is is the main character in the snapper. She she gets a bigger role in that, but because all the movies are produced by different companies, the characters have different names. Oh. So if you read that. the Barry Town trilogy, they're all the rabbit story. They're all stories of the rabbits. But if you watch the movies, they're going to have different names. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. All right. Jeez, that's uh, <laughs> I feel very silly uh, considering. Now the other like sort of weird little university thing is is that people have suggested on IMDb that that this movie is a prequel to Once because you've got Glenn Hansard. Sure playing in the opening scene at once he's seen busking in the streets of Dublin, which is what his character's doing here in The Commitment. So At the you, end. Yeah, right at the end. So if you want to say that that's the same character that later... Take that, Marvel. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. No, I don't know. So but you haven't said, did you like it? I did. I did. I didn't... I wasn't as involved in it as I was with fame. Um, wow. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I... But Love I mean, music, I, man. I'm surprised. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just... I, I liked it, but I wasn't like overwhelmed by it i guess did you like the irishness of it you know i mean there's the, the dialect the um the certainly the attitude of everybody you know maybe it makes me a terrible irish person but that stuff just doesn't interest me terribly it just doesn't i i know that my parents have my parents have been to ireland like dozens of times at this point and they're very into their uh well my mom doesn't have irish history but my dad certainly does but i mean I, i've that, heard that i've heard yeah. that but uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah that just doesn't it's just that's just not something that's that, that that is prevalent in my life so that part of it just i was like okay it, it didn't really matter to me that it was set in ireland more than any other place on the planet did you ever so. want to be in a band Never. I have no musical talent at all. No, it's not the same thing. That is not. The, okay. One is all right. Not. Well, I can. I can still give you the same answer. No, I have never. <laughs> that has never been of any interest to me. And I am. I'm. I like doing stuff. I mean, as much as I perform on the podcasting side of it, which I do a lot of. Um, there's a. There's a. I like being on stage in front of people is just absolutely like nothing I would ever want to do. It's absolutely terrifying. So no interest in that at all. So. Explains your stand-up career. That's right. That's right. So, uh, <laughs> wow. yeah. well, did you have a favorite scene? I don't know if I had. I don't know if I had a particularly favorite scene. I mean, I liked them. I liked the band figuring out their sound. Like that to me is interesting. Like because you do get that idea of like the watching art be created. That's hard to convey. That's really yeah. hard to convey because a lot of times when you show people creating art, it just makes it look like. It's just like it was simple, and it's not simple. A lot of it is hard work, like you know the whole ninety percent perspiration thing. Um, so I like that part of it. That it's this was it doesn't come to them easily. You know what I mean? Like they're not just all of a sudden like a great band. Like it, it, it's like pieces that have to be fit together, and they don't always fit together. Right. So I liked all that 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 part of it. Um, there's there's other movies I've I've seen about you know great artists where it's almost like oh it's just magic. And it's like, well, no, it's not magic. It's really just kind of hard work. And so I like yeah, that's, that part. Yeah, I hate those where it's like, yeah. A, oh, yeah, I've been, I've been working eight days a week. Hey, write that down. Yeah, exactly, right. Yeah. Char- Charlie yeah. Chaplin picks up his bowler cap. Oh, look, he's the little tramp. Well, no, it was a little harder Your than last that. name is Solo. Yeah, oh, Goni, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but, uh, but I mean, they're, they're all, I think they're all very good movies. And it says something about Alan Parker 
as I a director that he can that. bring this this eye that he has to very different sets of stories, very different kinds of stories, and makes them all work on their own level. I mean, it makes me want to see more of his movies. I haven't. There's only been a couple others of his that I've seen. I've seen Mississippi Burning, um, and I, that might be it. You know, I don't think I've seen. That's a good a, one too. Um, you oh, see the wall? No, I've never seen the wall. I've never seen what? the wall. No, oh, don't even get me started on that. Um, actually, wait, no, I, like on purpose? I, I am not a fan of Pink Floyd. <laughs> <laughs> Holy! Hang on. Uh oh. Oh my God! I, I thought you First walked off, away from the David Gilmore and I share the same initials. Oh, oh well, that's it. Okay. Uh, no, well, actually, no. I'm looking at his. I'm looking at his filmography. I have not seen any of his other movies. I've seen Mississippi Burning, but I've not seen Bugsy you seen Malone. Midnight Express. Oh yeah, I've seen Midnight Express. I forget. I have seen that one. I haven't seen The Wall. I haven't seen Birdie. I haven't seen Angel Heart. I haven't seen Come See the Paradise. I haven't seen Angel Heart? No, I haven't seen Road to Wellville. I haven't seen Evita or Angel's Ashes or Life of David Gale. So, yeah, that's it. Oh, my God. Yep. yep okay, yep. hang so, on. I got to catch up. What kind of show is this again? <laughs> Look, we just got to a Catherine Hepburn movie in the last episode. What do you want me to do? You, you did? Know? Yes. Finally. We finally got to a Catherine Hepburn movie. Again, two Aaron Gray movies so far. One Catherine, <laughs> one Catherine Hepburn. You know what matters. Yeah. I do want – okay. I, I, there, there is one line that I do want to point out. Okay. Where the, um, it's at the end of the movie. The band's falling apart. Jimmy's walking home, and um, certain promises that were supposed to be fulfilled didn't look like they were going to be. And uh, enjoy the lips. Fagan comes across um, Jimmy, and Jimmy yells at him and says that this was all for nothing. Why did you even want to put this band? Why, why did you even want to be in this band? Why, why do you think it was a good idea to, for me to put this band together? And Joey has this to say. He says, you're missing the point. The success of the band was irrelevant. You raised their expectations of life. You lifted, you lifted their horizons. Sure, we could have been famous and made albums and stuff, but that would have been predictable. This way, it's poetry. I like that a lot. Yeah, because it felt real. And you know, I love sad things. Yes. I love sad. I don't know why. I've heard that sad is happy, sad is, is happy for smart people. I'm gonna go with that. I, I feel like that's sad people finding a reason to like sad things, but but no, I no, I like that a lot. I agree with that. I think there's some there's a there's a beauty to not necessarily wanting to turn this into your career, just enjoying the thing for what it is, which is you know I can relate to with that with podcasting. You know, like I'm doing it because I love to do it. I'm not doing it because I think it's going to transform. Well, it has anything. built. It has built three three wings on your house. Well, that's true, and, and I, I am having a, a tennis court put in uh, by uh, oh, Peter Weller by Peter Weller. So, Dar- Darling, is, is Darling T spending a lot of time outside getting <laughs> beers and cigarettes She's for Peter Weller? Started wearing flannel shirts lately. I don't know what that's about. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, I think we should wrap it up here. That's our that's our look at our, our three Alan Parker movies. We haven't done any Alan Parker movies, and now we've done three in a row. I do want to see some of his others just to catch up because I think he's a really interesting filmmaker. Um, it's sad to think he's probably done. He doesn't really want to do anything else. But uh, but you know, there's some there's some cool stuff here. So I'm going to check check some of his other other uh, movies out. So well, David, uh, thank you as always for coming on. You know, I love talking to you, and thank you for pushing the commitments and fame on me. I'm glad I got a finally chance to see them. I feel like these movies are movies we could have done shows on individually. So I, I feel like if we haven't said enough about this to your audience, I just please see these movies, especially the commitments. Please see the commitments. It is the Highlander of music films. Yeah, there you go. What better compliment could he give you? Give the film, ladies and gentlemen, than calling and it And listen, that. and by the way, 
this is supposed to be a big year for me and you because two movies about two of our most important things are coming out. That's right. We have an Aquaman movie and a Queen movie coming out this year. And I can tell that one of us is enthused and the other one <laughs> isn't. So, it's, yeah, it's going to be... Well, you will be back to talk about uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. We will be back to talk I, about that. Yes. So, all right. Yes. All right. Well, anyway, that's, that's going to do it. Can I plug? Uh, what? Can I do my plugs? Oh, go, sure. Go, go. I was going to get to that. All right, go oh, do your sorry. Pl- sorry no, go, do your, go do your plugs. Do your plugs. Okay, so I will be appearing on an episode of Radio vs. the Martians probably after this episode drops. Yes. Shortly, in the month of August. Um, and then I will be appearing on a couple of episodes of Rock Solid, um, one of which will be concerning Bohemian Rhapsody and the other one, which will be um, a topic of my choice that I haven't discovered yet or thought about yet. Um, and, uh, yeah, and uh, please listen to Pod Dylan. Yes, you will. You will be back on both Film and Water and Pod Dylan this year, guaranteed. So we have that to look forward David to. David Guedes will return in. That's right, <laughs> Doctor Detroit Two: The Wrath of Mom. So uh, <laughs> yeah, check out check out these movies. I think they're they're all they're all available on iTunes, Fame, and The Commitments, and Shoot the Moon. All very different experiences, but but check them out. They're they're all really solid films. So that's going to do it for uh, this big triple feature episode of the Film and Water Podcast. You can find back episodes of the show on our website, of course, findwaterpodcast.com. And we're always talking movies on Twitter, at Film and Water Pod. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next week, that's a wrap. Then in a conversation with Warners about Harry Potter, tell me, tell me about this. Oh, yeah, no, that's painful. Um... They, uh, I helped the producer, David Heyman, just on a just general advice, really, in setting up the first one. And then he kept saying to me, well, why don't you do it? And I said, it's not really my thing. And I had been sent a book previously, which I really, truly didn't get. And uh, a lot of people didn't. You know? And then finally, when the second book came out, it started to be a phenomenon, and therefore you thought differently about it. And so they sent me the screenplay, the first screenplay, written by Steve Clovis, a very good writer. And uh, I thought, you know, Robert Stigwood, uh, Robert De Niro used to say to me, he never would say yes to doing anything. He always used to say, I have a mind to do it, mm. which means, which gets you off the hook if you end up not doing it. So I said, all right, I'll do it. So they said, well, will you have a um, conference call with Warner Brothers um, uh, tomorrow? I said, okay. And uh, it was 10 o'clock at night, and I picked up the phone in my kitchen in London. And they said, Alan, it's the producer, and Alan, it's the head of production. And then they said, I thought it was just two people that I was going to talk to. And then they said, uh, no, it's uh, Alan Horn, the chairman of the company. And it was ten people. Ten people at the in, in Burbank, in Los Angeles. And then me in my kitchen. <laughs> and they said, uh, this is for the very first Harry Potter. So they said to me, um, well, go ahead, Alan. And I said, what do you mean, go ahead? They said... Uh, well, how do you see it? I said, I've no idea. I haven't even thought about it. I said, I read the script once. Do you want me to do it? And they said, well, a lot of people want to do this film. I said, well, ask them then. And they, they, they put the phone down on me. <laughs> and, uh, which was really smart of me because it actually made $10 billion. So. But when you went subsequently to see Harry Potter, if indeed you did, do you think... I mean, your vision would have been... Di- I mean, everybody's vision is different, but I mean, there's so many people involved in a film like that. Well, funny enough, I went to Leavesden, the studios that, that Warner Brothers have bought, and they've got, they have this fantastic 
exhibition of Harry Potter. It's like a Disney thing, you know, Disneyland thing. It's so wonderful. And I walked around it, and I felt, interestingly, that uh, it's so brilliantly done. Because it's had loads of different directors, but it's really the, it's a fantastic work of mm. the production designer, Stuart Craig. Mm. He's, 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 it's, the he's the auteur, mm. not the directors. And uh, I looked at all this stuff, and it is fantastic and wonderful. And I felt, as a creative person, I felt almost, I didn't get it. I didn't see it. I didn't see the brilliance that Stuart Craig had seen. Even the dopey Warner Brothers executives had seen, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, Any I Warner Brothers executives here? No, no.